Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hey, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is good to be back, Owen, on this lovely summer day. It is indeed. Yes, it is March 8th that we're recording and we're talking ETFs. We're talking uh, what actually goes on inside an ETF. And this is a thing I think that this is an episode that I think a lot of our listeners are going to get confidence from actually understanding what goes on behind the scenes. Absolutely. We've talked about a lot of the basics of ETFs and how they work on the show, even in our starter pack in January. So a lot of the new investors would have heard about ETFs, exchange traded funds in that episode. But I went on this journey of looking into how does ETFs actually work underneath the surface a few years ago. And So this is a lot of interesting stuff. And I think if you are interested in investing and long-term investing, it does give you a bit more confidence when you understand the product a little bit more. Mm. So I think if you're a new investor, you should head back to our starter pack episode in January just to get a bit of a rundown of ETFs because we're going to use some terms today that um, might have a little bit of assumed knowledge. But our guest today, which Owen's going to introduce in a second, is going to really unpack everything under the surface so you can really understand how the product works. Yeah. Evan Metcalf is joining us from uh, the ETF Securities in Sydney. And Kate, I know that you said that you were doing some random Googling and you came across an ETF Securities document, which basically explained all of the things that happened behind the scenes. So Evan, welcome to the show today, mate. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me on. No, it's, it's our pleasure. So um, we're happy to get an expert on for this episode in particular, because it's going to be a little bit technical, but um, hopefully you can break it down for us and um, explain those terms as we go. So Kate, I know you've got the first question for Evan here. Yeah. To start the conversation, I'd really like to have a look at some of those key people and ideas involved underneath ETFs, because we often look at it from a surface level. Um, and that's how we often talk about it, because it can get a little like bit a confusing. Box. Yeah. But Underneath the the neat, attractive packaging of an ETF, where it's all packaged up nicely for the consumer, I want to talk a bit more about how they actually work. And one of the first starting points I thought we could talk about, Evan, was the open-ended structure of ETFs, because that's quite a new concept for some people. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Um, So I think when most people think about ETFs, the first thing that they think about is that they're they're funds. I think most people understand that they're kind of similar to, to a managed fund. But the main difference is that they trade on exchange. And not only do they trade on exchange, they trade on exchange at a price that somewhat reflects the value of the underlying portfolio. So that's a little bit different from a managed investment, uh, like a traditional unlisted type uh, fund. It's also a bit different from a a listed investment company or a listed investment trust. So licks and licks, sorry, licks and lits. So for most people, they understand that's what an ETF is. That's how an ETF works. And they're able to successfully trade ETFs based on that. But they don't necessarily always have the opportunity to look underneath and see what actually happens. So to explain that, we need to introduce the concept of the primary and the secondary markets. So there's two, mm. two separate markets for an ETF that interact with each other. So in the primary market, investors are able to come directly to the fund manager. They place orders with the fund manager themselves for either the creation of new ETF units or the redemption of existing ETF units. So this is exactly what happens, exactly the same as what happens in the unlisted fund world. Uh, So what happens there is that someone will come to the fund manager, place an order, and they're given a price at the end of the day. So Mm -hmm. they're creating an end of day 
at the end of the day, they're creating new ETF units. The only difference with a, uh, an ETF in this respect is that the primary market is only open to investment professionals known as authorized participants or APs. So they're one of the key uh, parties involved in the ETF market that we need to understand. So an AP is usually a major investment bank, a, a securities house, or a, a trading professional. So they're the, the companies that can create and redeem units directly with the ETF issuer. The other market is the secondary market. This is what most people are, are more familiar with. So this is where you trade ETF units on the stock exchange. So buying and selling in the same way that you would buy and sell a share and in the same way that you would buy and sell a lick or a lit. So the, the secondary market here is supported by not just end users of ETFs, but also by parties known as market makers. So these are effectively liquidity providers to the ETF. So they're often, but not always, contracted to the ETF issuer, and their job is to provide buying, buy and sell prices, so bid and offer prices on an ETF continuously throughout the, the day. And um, this is what effectively allows people to trade on the secondary market. So you have these two markets, the primary market and the secondary market, and they're linked. And the reason that they're linked is because there are participants who can trade in both of those markets. So if you have the situation where those two markets are pricing an ETF at different levels, then you effectively have an arbitrage or a, an opportunity for, for someone to make risk-free profits by buying the ETF units in the cheaper of the two markets and selling them in the more expensive of the two markets. So it's really this interaction between these two markets that is the, the key feature of ETFs and the, the kind of special source that makes ETFs what they are and keeps the price of an ETF at or very close to the value of its underlying portfolio. So Evan, if I'm a consumer using my Perla or my Stake account, I would be purchasing ETFs via the secondary market. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So secondary market is what most people trade in and out of. That's where, that's what happens on exchange. That's what people see in their brokerage accounts. Primary market is for specialized investment uh, firms only. And so those those specialized firms, those authorized participants, they effectively, do they effectively collect all of the, say if there's like a, an Australian shares ETF, they collect all of the, the, the shares and then hand them to you, the ETF issuer, in effect? Uh, yeah. So there's two different ways that the primary market can operate. So there's in-cash and in-kind creations and redemptions. So an in-kind creation or redemption is, as you described, where an authorized participant would buy up the securities that form the underlying portfolio for the ETF and deliver those to the ETF issuer in exchange for, for newly created units in an ETF. Uh, the other alternative is, is cash creations and redemptions where they provide the ETF issuer with the value in cash of, of the underlying securities and the ETF issuer then goes and invests that in the fund. So there's, there's two different models, but they effectively provide the same outcome. And I find the idea of market makers really interesting because unlike shares in a company where you would be buying and selling to some other individual or bank or something like that, with a market maker, they can keep creating more units of the ETF and you're not always buying directly from another participant from your, your mate who also has that ETF they want to sell. You could also be uh, buying newly created units in this ETF that the market maker are creating. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so a market maker will usually maintain a certain amount of inventory on an ETF. So they'll, it'll be like a, think about it like a supermarket where they have uh, stock on the shelf 
uh, and they're, they're able to offer that to, to end investors via the secondary market, but they're also simultaneously offering to buy units off investors who are wishing to sell. So they're there in the market all the time. When you trade, chances are you probably trade with the market maker, but not necessarily because there's other buyers and sellers in there at the same time. Uh, so it can be you know, retail investor versus retail investor or you know, other types of investors interacting with each other. But market makers will be there providing liquidity on both sides. The more market makers you have, the more competition there is, which usually results in, in tighter bid offer spreads uh, and then you know, better outcomes for, for end investors um, as a result of that as well. Now, you touched on liquidity there. Are you able to explain a little bit more about what that means in the context of ETFs and what an investor should know about and have a look at if they're trying to understand how easy it will be to buy and sell units in an ETF? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, so market makers will provide the underlying liquidity and they generally are um, you know, contracted or, or otherwise incentivized in some cases, not, not necessarily, but some of the incentive can just be their own... Uh, their own trading um, objectives, but um, they'll provide a, a certain amount of liquidity on screen at any time. But that's not necessarily reflective of the underlying liquidity of an ETF. So you could look at either how much liquidity is on screen, so how much in, say, dollars you can buy and sell of an ETF. Um, you can also look at how much a particular ETF trades historically. Both of these aren't necessarily very good indicators of um, you know how much actual liquidity there is in an ETF. So if you look at historic trading volume, that's probably a bit more of a signal of how popular an ETF is and, and how many investors are trading, but it doesn't really tell you about how much you could trade if you wanted to really trade a, a large amount of a particular ETF. So to, to understand a bit more about that, you have to look at the, the, the actual portfolio of the ETF and see what it's made up of, what the securities are in there and what the the underlying liquidity of those securities is. So in theory, an ETF is really just a, a wrapper and just a, effectively a look-through to the underlying portfolio. So if, if the underlying portfolio is highly liquid, say ASX 200 stocks, then trading liquidity of the ETF, uh, or theoretical at least liquidity of the ETF, is, is more or less unlimited from, from the perspective of most investors. Uh, I, th I think the, the only other thing to consider aside from the, the liquidity of the underlying investments is which market makers are involved in the ETF. So, um, you know, certain market makers, uh, you know, when they, when they hold inventory, when they create and redeem, there's, there's a funding cost to those market makers. So certain market makers might have access to more capital and, and be able to trade in larger parcels. Uh, but yes, mm -hmm. for most investors trading ETFs on a daily basis, that's not really a, a concern, but it's, it's worth understanding just in terms of, you know, how it works at the sort of institutional scale as well. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've seen a few questions pop up in our Facebook community before when someone's been looking at a particular ETF, it might be a little bit more niche and there's only been one trade in the last day and they were going, oh, is that a bad sign? Does that mean I won't be able to buy and sell in the future? And I guess you answered that question because different ETFs aren't always as popular on individual days, but because of that market maker and the liquidity, it doesn't really reflect necessarily that the ETF is mm not a good ETF just because it was one trade yesterday. Yeah, exactly. When, when ETFs trade a little bit thinly as well, sometimes uh, you know, market makers aren't always showing the, the sharpest prices. So I think it's, it's quite often worth contacting an ETF issuer in that, uh, in that case because uh, there's potentially um, you know, opportunity to, to um, you know, get some better pricing in the market if, uh, if there you know, hasn't been much activity for a little while in some of those funds. 
Yeah, and just to confirm what Kate said there, you can check that by looking at in your brokerage account, seeing how many buyers and how many sells there are, and and seeing the trade history there as well. Evan, um, there's there's a lot to unpack there, but I guess the one kind of actor that we haven't really focused on is the uh, the ETF issuer, so like ETF securities. Um, what's the incentive for uh, an ETF provider or ETF issuer, and how do you guys get paid? Yeah, I mean we're we're definitely a business like like every other. Uh, mm. So our, our revenue is is the management fee of of the ETF effectively, um, and and that's you know not obviously straight straight profit. So there's a lot of uh, costs and things that go into to running an ETF. So there's there's a whole range of, of direct costs that are, are really associated with a with a particular ETF. So they can be things like um, fees for custodial services, fund administrators. Uh, we need to have a registrar to to communicate with um, with investors. Um, Exchange fees, so trading on the ASX or, or uh, SIBO markets. Uh, quite often, ETFs will track an index. Um, those indices aren't free either, so there's index providers that that charge fees as well. Mm. Um, and then there's a whole other range of services like you know auditing, um, legal, tax, all those sort of things. So they're, they're kind of what you would think about as being the the direct costs that uh, the funds management fee would pay for. And then indirect costs would be things like um, you know an ETF issuer would need to run a portfolio management team and have systems and, and things in place to, to successfully run the underlying portfolios. Uh, they also have you know, distribution staff and, and marketing and, and those sort of things to, to promote the ETFs. Um, and then, of course, there's you know, usual business overheads and, mm. and then an element of profit margin as well at the end of all that. Mm. It's interesting because we're often using uh, management fees to compare ETFs, but we don't often think about all the different costs involved, including the, the cost to actually replicate an index, which is, mm. uh, can be quite expensive depending on which index you're, you're copying. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's, there's different, different fees are applicable for different types of funds as well. So there's certain cases, an index might be, might be more specialised than a, than a sort of plain vanilla index, so it may have higher index fees. In other cases, it may be um, that you're trading in, in jurisdictions that are more expensive from a transaction cost perspective and a custody perspective as well. So it could be to do with the actual costs of uh, you know, holding and trading the underlying assets. But yeah, there's definitely a range of different inputs that uh, determine what goes into the, the management fee and why certain management fees are, are higher and lower than others. Mm. Absolutely. Now, Evan, this is probably a topic that people don't really like to talk about, and I, I don't see any many discussions about it, but what actually happens if the ETF provider, um, something goes wrong and maybe the ETF provider does close down? What happens to your money invested in those ETFs? Yeah. Um, well, fortunately, we've not had that situation in, in the history of the ETF market in Australia. Mm. Uh, I, I don't That's see good. anything <laughs> at the moment, so um, in, in theory. Uh, so, as, as with any other managed investment, the, the, the assets of an ETF are, are effectively segregated. So they're, they're held by a custodian. And that custodian is you know, a highly, highly regulated entity um, that, that holds assets for, for ETFs and also for, another, for a range of other institutions. Um, but those assets are segregated and they're held in, in accounts that are in the name of the ETF itself. So the, the issuer or the responsible entity for the, for the ETF will have Effectively, functional access to those fun- to those assets to be able to transact on them and to to manage the ETF, but the actual beneficial owners of those of those assets are effectively the end unit holders of the ETF. So, if the ETF issuer were to fall over and, and effectively disappear overnight, those assets remain in custody for the benefit of the end investors. 
And to clarify that the custodian is a separate entity to the ETF issuer. Yeah, yeah. In most cases, the custodian is a separate entity. Uh, there's certain types of, um, you know, I've seen some things like uh, some of the the new um, cryptocurrency unlisted funds, not, not ETFs at this stage that have self-custody and things like that. But um, uh, in that case as well, there will still be a segregation of assets. Um, so yes, in, in general, 99% of the cases, it is a separate entity. And, then, and I think it's worth pointing out that ETFs are very well regulated in Australia because we've got obviously ASIC, but then we've got the ASX as well sitting in between that, right? Um, from, from what I can tell, it seems that there are a lot of protections in place. Yeah, that's right. So, so ASIC sets the general framework for regulation and, and the exchanges are um, effectively the, the bodies that operate those markets. So they're, in a way, the, the institutions that um, kind of enforce the rules. Um, so they, they have a, a remit of certain products that they're allowed to let onto the markets. Um, they have their own internal policies as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's, there's a lot of regulation around and, and there's no... Um, uh, you know, there's there's definitely restrictions on the types of ETFs that can be can be listed, and the types of service providers and things that can be involved in ETFs as well. So there's a whole lot of due diligence done around the whole process of an ETF, from the underlying investment all the way through to to how the fund operates. And all that is fantastic for consumers because we do have a more uh, rigorously checked product in our financial services system. But mm. if we're looking at, so you did mention that the holdings of the ETF are kept in a separate uh, account with the custodians. So if the, the ETF issuer did fall over, would a new investment manager be appointed in this situation or would a liquidator be appointed to wind up the holdings in that separate account and pay them to the unit holders, you and me, mm. um, who are beneficiaries? Uh, yeah, both of those are options, really. Um, so it depends upon the individual circumstances. It'll depend upon uh, things like the terms of the, the constitution of the underlying funds and what's allowable in terms of change of responsible entity or change of, of ETF issuer or manager, effectively. Uh, and it will also depend upon you know whether there is another manager that's interested in in taking a particular ETF on board as well. So so I presume you would appoint an administrator who would take over the the um, ETF provider that's fallen over and they would look for a replacement uh, manager who could then slot in and effectively continue managing those assets. Um, and that should be almost a seamless process from the, from the end investor point of view. Uh, and the other alternative, as you say, is to liquidate the portfolio. So they could sell the assets of the portfolio and return the funds directly to the end investors. So there should be, just because the ETF issue has fallen over, that shouldn't impact the value of the underlying assets. Um, you know, of course, the the underlying investors don't. Well, the, the investors don't get um, to choose the the timing of their their sale in that case, but um, but they will receive you know one hundred percent of the proceeds back, and there, there should be no uh, no slippage or no um, you know real transaction costs associated with that for for the end investors. Mm. It's it's like a hypothetical thing, isn't it? Talking about um, the actual ETF providers going under, like you said, that that's that has been happened uh, at least here in Australia, and um, it's very rare in, in any case. Uh, but the the thing that has happened in Australia, Evan, is some ETFs have closed down, and I think one of the fears is that people who buy into an ETF and they think, oh, this is a great ETF, I'm really excited about this opportunity. But it doesn't really seem to get much traction. Like other investors aren't as excited about it. It doesn't really grow. And then they hear they get news that the, the ETF is closing down. Uh, can you just describe kind of what happens in that process? And um, maybe if then we'll talk about like 
how maybe we can identify those ETFs? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, unfortunately, that's, uh, that's something that, that happens from time to time. Um, so there's, there's probably a couple of reasons that, that an issuer would look to, to close an ETF. One is, is due to a, a, a one-off event. Um, that's not really something that's happened much in Australia. But um, for example, 2020, we saw offshore, we saw a lot of things like leveraged oil ETFs. When um, mm. COVID struck, oil price fell through the floor. Uh, and in fact, the, the near-term futures contracts actually went into negative territory back in, back in March in 2020. So mm. we saw some things like leveraged oil. Those funds just went to zero. So they were forced to terminate. Uh, we've got the situation at the moment of, uh, again, offshore funds holding predominantly Russian assets at the moment. Are, many of those are suspended and there's potential that they'll have to liquidate in the near future and potentially for uh, very little value. Mm. Um, but I guess the most common scenario is where an ETF has been launched, has sat on the shelf for a few years, failed to really get any uh, traction with investors. Um, it's not to say there's anything particularly wrong with the ETF. It just hasn't uh, hasn't become you know hasn't either had the right market timing or hasn't been promoted sufficiently in the right segments uh, for one reason or another. There's not that much investor interest in the fund, um, and in that case, an ETF issuer can choose to to close down the fund. And in doing that, it's it's um, you know in some ways it's in the ETF issuer's interest because they have costs and and things associated with the fund. But it's also in in the investor's interest as well. So if you're sitting in a fund with with very little activity in it, bid offer spreads are going to be wider than they would be on a, on an active fund. So there's costs of getting in and out aren't necessarily um, in in the investor's favour. There's things like any fixed costs in the fund over a very small fund will be larger in terms of percentage costs. So it's actually more costly and and not really in the best interest of the end investor to. Um, uh, you know, to continue on with us, with certain funds at least. Mm. Now we saw a few ETFs in the last couple of years, uh, particularly, and you talked about like investor interest. I think that's one of the big key things that I've I've noticed is not enough investors investing in the fund to make it profitable for the ETF provider. So it's just being aware, you know, most of the big ETF providers, ETF securities included, to put a lot of time and care, right, into picking which ETFs to offer because of that, because they don't want to launch a product and then it just kind of no one really invests in it. That's kind of defeats the purpose. So um, one of the things that's interesting to know, Evan, is, is would investors have a chance to sell out? Like, would they get a notification to say, this ETF is going to be closed on X date. You can either sell it or you can hold on to it and then we'll give you the cash. Is that typically what happens? Yeah, yeah. So usually, uh, and there's there's some discretion around this from from from. Uh, uh, from ETF issuers, and also um, there'll be some differences in terms of, um, you know, again the underlying sort of constitutions of funds and what they're allowed to do and what they aren't allowed to do. But from experience, uh, what we've generally seen in the market here is that, that um, the the issuer will make an announcement, so that'll be a public announcement that goes out via the ASX, or um, and that will then get picked up by things like uh, brokerage um, firms. So they'll they'll display that on their um, on their pages for a particular security, uh, for a particular ETF, um, and then, you know, news wires and things will pick that up as well. So it'll be in the public domain. Also, any existing investors will, will get notified via the registry. So they'll receive either an email or a, or a letter communicating to them that the fund is going to terminate. And what usually happens is that there's a, a period of, uh, I guess, post-announcement trading. So that'll be normal trading. Market makers will still be in place. They'll still be 
they'll still be offering to buy and sell units at close to the NAV at any point in time. Um, so trading will carry on as normal. So people have the option to exit via the secondary market. So they can they can trade out on exchange, just sell on their brokerage accounts. They they have a certain window during which they can do that, or they can stay in the fund and be liquidated when the fund terminates. So at that point, the, the ETF issuer will sell down all the remaining securities in the fund and determine the final liquidation value and then distribute that equally on a per unit basis to holders. So it's kind of like um, they give you a fair warning. Then you have a choice. You can go into your brokerage account, sell it, or you can wait for them to liquidate it. I imagine most people would probably sell it if they're um, in that situation. Um, and I imagine the, the key concern for people would be either capital gains or capital losses at that point. How do they um, manage that for their own affairs? So that's good to know. I think the, the kind of key takeaway there is just be aware of what's being announced by the ETF uh, issuer and, and in your brokerage account if you click that news mm. and announcements tab i think that's that's key there uh, evan this has been a really good episode because it's we've really got into the nitty-gritty we've talked about open-ended structures about market makers authorized participants and how a lot of that liquidity uh, is kind of predetermined by the the quality of the uh, market makers but also the asset class like as shares would be more liquid meaning good um, than say things that aren't as as liquid in the underlying asset class kate what's some, what's some of your takeaways I think just reminding like how market makers and that open-ended structure works because it's quite a different uh, way of operating than investing in individual companies is mm. good. And I think it is it is helpful and it gives a lot of confidence to investors just knowing what happens if either the provider um, closes yeah. down or the individual ETF closes down because we're all investing in ETFs, but we often don't ask the, the questions about underneath. And we're very big on reading the product disclosure statement, actually having a look at all those details. You can mm. even find out who the custodian and the registry and uh, all of those details are before you invest as well. Um, and Evan, I was just wondering, since you're you're running ETS day in, day out, and you're getting lots of questions, are there any things that we didn't ask you in today's conversation that you get asked all the time about how ETS work that you'd want to add mm. for our listeners? Mm, that's that's an interesting one. I, th- I think you had a good point there around um, making sure you have a look at the, the product disclosure statement. That's That's something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily look at too closely. Um, so yeah, as you say, that will have all of the service providers listed. You'll be able to see where the where the assets are held. Um, you know, in some cases, for example, we run physical metals funds, physical precious metals funds, where you you can see exactly you know which uh, which vaults those those funds are, head, are held in, um, or those mm. those bars are held in. So it's I think looking looking underneath the hood, either in the PDS or on the issuer's website, is is key to understanding you know how an ETF actually works. Mm, that's a fascinating one because I know that um, like there's like a Excel spreadsheet that you can get which shows you the the gold bars and um, it tells you how much is held. It's it's and I, we've had Kanish on the show before. He talks about all the all the gold in the vault and how secure it is. Um, he wears it like a badge of pride, I think. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly, exactly. You can see exactly, you know, who the refiner is, um, how much the bar weighs. It's, it's, it's there's a whole lot of detail there if you um, if you care to take a look. Yeah, great. Um, and I think the thing for me to take away from this episode too is that there are a lot of protections in place. And at the end of the day, the end investor is the one who still owns assets. Uh, so, you know, in a normal market, if you know, should the worst happen you are still the owner of the investments and, and it, one way or another, that's that's yours. So I think that gives a lot of uh, reassurance to people, Evan, who are now all of a sudden finding themselves accumulating a lot of wealth inside ETFs. And I think we spoke off air 
that's probably going to happen more and more. People are going to build huge portfolios out of ETFs. So yeah, once again, thanks for taking some time to join Kate and I on the show. Really appreciate it. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.